This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is The Book Show. I'm Claire Nichols. And today I want to reflect on the year in literature by looking back at three of the big award winners of 2022. Now, I know, I know, book awards are not everything. Uh, They are completely subjective. But these three conversations with these three award winners, well, they just happen to be some of my favourite conversations from the year. So over the next hour, let's celebrate the winners of the Booker, Miles Franklin and Women's Prizes for Fiction, Shehan Karinatikala, Jennifer Down and Ruth Ozeki. Ruth Ozeki won this year's Women's Prize for Fiction with her quite magical novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness. And Ruth is an endlessly fascinating person. She's a former filmmaker. She's a Zen Buddhist priest and just a really great person to talk to, as you're about to hear. We spoke about the wonder of libraries and how meditation helps her to discover a character. And we started by talking about how she felt winning the Women's Prize. Oh, my goodness. I was so surprised. You know, I I really did not expect this. And, you know, so when, you know, you're you're standing off to the side thinking, oh, it's going to be over soon. I can go get a I can go get a glass of champagne. And (laughs) and suddenly, you know, they're calling the name of your book. And it's like, oh, my God, I I totally did not expect it. And, you know, the I read all of the other books on the list and and they are, you know, all of them just brilliant. Um, So it was a you know, it was a real honor. Um, And I think because it's a women's prize, too, that meant a lot to me because there's a long lineage of women who have helped me in my life. And um, and, and so this felt like a a wonderful celebration, uh, you know, of that lineage as well. I also just think the women's prize just it does it so well. The shortlist is always amazing. Like the books are just so enjoyable to read. They they really pick them well, I think. Good. I do, too. (laughs) I, I I mean I I was so happy because you know when I when I heard that the book of form and emptiness was shortlisted I immediately looked at the other books and and ordered them all and and started reading them it was like you know it was like a gift getting getting this reading list you know it was wonderful uh, so you are a prize winning author but you've also worked in film and TV in Japan and America mm-hmm. you're a Zen Buddhist priest um, there's so much yes. to talk about and I'm really looking forward <laughs> to hearing more of your story uh, but I thought. We could go back to the beginning, Ruth. Uh, You're the child of linguist parents. I wonder how that shaped your relationship with language growing up. Yeah, you know, it was um, both my parents are, are, are linguists. My dad was a um, was a linguistic anthropologist, um, and so there was, you know, there there were always there were always interesting things and interesting languages being spoken in the house. And, and I think that I started to pay attention to language um, quite early. I was also an only child and, you know, the, the, the child of two eggheaded scholars. right? And so language was very, very important in the house. And I, I remember things like when I was in the third grade, I think I made a, a cardboard um, model of an Egyptian tomb. And my dad had this enormous 
dictionary of Egyptian hieroglyphs. And so I wrote out a message and then I, you know, painstakingly went through the dictionary and, and, you know, drew all of the little hieroglyphs and translated you know, the message in in what at that point thought was Egyptian, right? Um, so you know, it was obviously something that I was that I was drawn to and very interested in from a very young age. That is amazing. And your your mum was from Japan, so was um, Japanese spoken in the house as well? Well, you'd you'd think, right? You'd you'd think it would be, um, but no. Um, my my mother was born in Japan. She spent the first six years of her life there, and then uh, they moved to Hawaii. And so she was really brought up in Hawaii. And although Japanese was her first language, um, she was more comfortable, I think, in English by that point. And and I think the other thing too uh, is that. You know, I was born, what, 11 years after the end of World War II. And my mother obviously didn't have such a great time being Japanese in America, being an enemy alien, you know, in America at that time. Um, and I think she still felt that Japanese was a was a handicap, that that it was not going to be the most useful language for me to learn. Um, she never really encouraged me. Um, so I had to wait until I went to university uh, to start studying Japanese. Wow. And I guess as the child of linguists, uh, I'm guessing books were pretty important in your home, but perhaps also the library. How sacred a space was the library? (laughs) It's... It was such an important part of my growing up. Um, This was, you know, back in the 1950s. And um, my parents were, you know, as I said, they were older and they were, you know, both academics. And so they, they didn't ever play with me the way that parents today play with their children. We had a kind of formal relationship. But at the same time, the thing that my mom and I did, um, especially during summer vacation, was we would go to the library. We would go to the public library, you know, a couple times a week. And she would take me down to the basement, which is where the children's section was. And she would just leave me there, right, while she went and did the shopping and she went and read in other parts of the library. And I just remember being so happy down there as a little child in this room filled with books and these very, very nice ladies who owned all of the books and who would give me any book I wanted to take home with me, you know, and and that just seemed like the most magical thing in the world. And um, and so I really kind of grew up in the basement of that library. Um, and it was, you know, it was it was a wonderful place. And, and I've continued to have that relationship with libraries, I think, all through my life. Um, I, they've always been extremely precious places to me. And, um, you know, I wrote my when I wrote my first novel, My Year of Meats, I did most of the research for that at the Vancouver Public Library in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, that was back in the olden days when before the Internet, when you actually had to physically, you know, like go to a library and, you know, to do your research. And, um, but it was wonderful. Yeah, it was wonderful. And I think the memories that I have from that really informed uh, this this uh, most recent book as well. Yes, there is a character in this book, uh, a lady. Let me just read the description. Uh, an older woman typing very fast on her laptop computer. She looked to be in her 50s or 60s, part Asian maybe, with black framed glasses and grey streaked hair. This is a character we see sitting in the library in this book. Ruth, this is you, right? 
It's the typing lady. <laughs> it's the it's the typing lady, and you know she she lives in all libraries, doesn't she? I mean, there, there's always the typing lady wherever you, whatever library you go to, and she she sits there in her little you know in her carol, um, observing what's going on, uh, and in this case, she's observing the the boy Benny, who's the you know protagonist of the story, and she's trying very hard not to interfere with him. You know, she just observes him and uh, and. And her fingers never stop moving. Uh, yes. So, yes, of course, she's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for saying that. Uh, I spoke, I've spoken to an author before who wrote a novel sitting in the library, and it struck me at the time that it can be quite an inspiring place just because there are so many people, maybe a boy who captures your attention, who you want to write about. Mm-hmm. Is it a place that helps you when it comes to writing a book? Yes, very much so. I love writing in uh, in public places, and libraries are, are you know public places that are are meant for exactly this activity, you know, for writing and reading. And there's just something about being, you know, first of all, there's something about watching people be absorbed in books that is tremendously encouraging if you're trying to write one. Um, so that's that's one of the things, you know. And then the other, of course, is just the hush, the silence in, in you know, many libraries, not all of them, but, you know, many libraries, um, which is, of course, very conducive to, to you know, the production of, of, of lang- you know, of more language, right? Um, and then uh, the other thing, too, though, is that, you know, whenever I'm in a library, I know how long it takes me to write a book and I know what kind of focus and concentration is required. You know, so to my mind, every book is a repository of that kind of attention and concentration and the years that each writer has put into each of the books, you know, in the stacks. And, and so when you think about it that way, it's a, it's a really kind of magical and, and it's almost like a temple or a shrine, you know, um, that, that holds the energy of all of those writers over time. And it's all concentrated, you know, in these volumes on the stack, you know, on the shelves. Um, I, I just, I love that feeling. It's very powerful. You didn't start your career as an author. You worked in film and TV in Japan and in America, I think. What did that teach you about telling stories, Ruth? When I was in high school, I was very interested in uh, in video production. It was just at the sort of beginning of, of video production. And that's really where um, I first got a taste for that. And so when I, I had a chance to work in that, um, in that industry in New York, uh, you know, I, I sort of jumped at it. Um, at the time, I was working mostly in the art department, and then I started working in uh, in as a producer, and uh, then as a line producer, as a coordinator. And finally, finally, they let me direct. And this was this was when I was working for Japanese television, and I I just knew that not even directing as much, but I I knew that the secret to storytelling was in the editing room. And so the only way I could get into the editing room was to be directing. And so finally they let me start to direct. And I remember taking, you know, all of these hours of tapes back to uh, Tokyo, which is where the editing was being done. And basically being shut up in an editing room for day after day after day in crazy hours. Um, But that's where I really learned how to tell stories. I mean, that's where I, I started to understand what it, took to 
move a story through time in an efficient way and in an interesting way. Because, of course, television is a very unforgiving medium. Um, and if you don't grab the audience's attention early on, then people are going to change the channel. Um, and that's even more so now, I think, with, you know, with the Internet. I mean, we're always clicking through, you know, to something new. Um, so the, the this idea of, of really moving quickly into a story and finding a way to tell it that's engaging is something that I think I learned um, primarily through uh, editing visual media. And does the same hold true now for you in that the story really comes together in the edit process? Oh, that's a great question. Um, these days, I think I write in a more linear way. So it's not like editing together a documentary film, for example, where you have disparate pieces of you know, scenes and tape, and, and you really are kind of putting it together in a montage type of way. No, I think these days I, I write more to discover the story. And so I am writing in a fairly linear way. Um, I'm writing in order to find out what happens next. Uh, so it's not like I move into a book with a preconceived notion of, uh, you know, of what the book is and where it should go um, and, you know, who the characters are and what they're going to do next. I really don't know a lot when I start a book. And so every day is a is a just a process of discovery. Um, so I can't really leap about too much. Uh, I have to I have to take a fairly linear approach. OK, I think it's time to get into the fact that you are a Zen Buddhist priest. <laughs> how, how did you get yes. into Zen Buddhism? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, it's in my family. Uh, so um, my grandfather, my Japanese grandparents were Zen Buddhists. Um, and, you know, the, the first memory I have, uh, you know, when I was a little tiny person. I think I was three years old when I first met my grandparents and they had come to visit us um, in the States. And uh, I remember being, you know, sent into the bedroom to wake them up and call them for breakfast. And I remember opening the door, you know, reaching up to the door handle because it was much higher than me and opening the door and being just really startled to see my grandparents sitting on the floor, cross-legged, rocking back and forth with their eyes closed. And um, they were just finishing up a meditation. And I remember my grandfather opened his eyes and we were, you know, he was on eye level with me. And it was like this moment of connection, right? And um, I, I think I was probably terrified, but but that was the first memory I had as a, as a person, right? Um, and in a way, you know, I, I always think of it a little bit like a little duckling imprinting on, you know, the first human or the first thing, you know, that it sees moving. Uh, so all through my childhood um, and when I was a teenager and in college, I was always very curious about meditation and trying out different, you know, different styles and different techniques. And um, and then so it was a, something I had a relationship with all of my life. Um, when I was in Japan, I was studying, um, I was studying the Zen arts, uh, you know, so that was part of it, I think, as well. But then the time I got really serious about it was when I was in my uh, 40s, my well, late 30s, I guess. And um, my parents were, uh, you know, they were old and they, they were dying. And, you know, in the traditional story of the, you know, the Buddha, too, what set him on the path was um, this 
understanding, you know, that we're all temporary, that we're all subject to sickness, old age and death. And it certainly was the case for me. I, I realized that my parents were dying and that it was, you know, I was an only child and it was going to be up to me to see them through this. And I felt completely unprepared to do this. And so for me, you know, getting involved with a Buddhist community and, um, and learning to meditate, you know, it, it was a source of strength for me. And um, it really helped me at a time when I needed it. And and I never I never stopped. I, it just it became so much a part of my life. Um, and I wanted to help uh, sort of continue that lineage, you know, continue the, the teachings and, and um, you know, because I figure it'll help other people too. And so that's why um, I asked for ordination. So what does a, a typical day look like for an author slash priest? <laughs> Right. Well, I usually, you know, I, I try to meditate every day. That 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 is certainly the way, my preferred way of of starting the day. And you know, nowadays with uh, with COVID, so many of the groups are meditating online. So it's it's really kind of nice because you can have your choice. You know, you can you can meditate with people in California, or you can meditate with people in New York, or you know, anywhere really, um, anywhere around the world. So I I do try to sit every day. When I'm actively writing, um, you know, I also try to write every day, obviously. I tend to prefer mornings for both. Sometimes I'll sit again in the evening uh, just because it's a nice way to end the day as well. When school is in session, though, I'm also you know, the, the third hat that I wear is um, I teach at, at a university here. Um, and so... And you know, this that is teaching is, creative writing? Yes, that's right. That's right. And um, and I do that because it's just been wonderful to... It's just been wonderful to hang out with young people. You know, I, I enjoy that. And um, so that's something else that I do as well. Um, so, I, you know, I, I have a busy... <laughs> the day is very busy. Uh, but when I'm when I'm really deep in um, in writing a book, and especially when I'm, you know, sort of pushing toward to the end of a book, um, I do whatever I can to just give myself unscheduled time, um, because that to me is is the most precious thing. One of the interesting things about this book, The Book of Form and Emptiness, is there are a lot of ideas around Zen Buddhism to be found in the text itself. But I'm interested to know how being a Buddhist affects your writing practice itself. Mm. One of the things that I have found is that meditation and writing are very synergistic, um, that meditation really helps writing and writing really helps meditation. I know that sounds a little odd because, in, in fact, in many ways, they're very different. But when I'm teaching writing, for example, the first thing I do is I teach my students to uh, to meditate. Really? Yeah. 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 Wow. And the reason is because I want them to... I want them to experience what it is to really, you know, to, to drop into their bodies. I mean, we, in the West, we think of meditation as being some, as something that we do with our minds. You know, we empty our minds, we clear our minds, we, we, we push away thoughts, you know, but that's, that's not the way that, um, that we practice in, in my tradition, um, in Zen. Zen meditation is something that you do with your body. And, and so it's, um, it's very physical and it, trains you to open all of your sense gates. In other words, to really pay attention to sensation, 
right? So that can be the sense of sound, smell, taste, touch, you know, um, sight, because you keep your eyes open. Um, so all of your sense gates are open and you are just sitting quietly in the moment with all of your senses open, not doing anything, not trying to do anything, just taking in the world and, and experiencing whatever is happening in the moment, right? Now, what I tend to do, and, and I started doing this before I even understood the relationship, but when I'm writing a scene, for example, um, very often what I will do is I will, you know, my fingers are kind of on the keyboard and I'll close my eyes and drop into that meditation body and open my sense gates, but I'm doing it in my imagination. Right. And so I'll put myself in the body mind of the character I'm writing and in, in the location, wherever the character is. Right. And then just start to notice what is happening in that location. So I'm very attuned to the senses. In other words, you know, the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. And, um, and that really helps. And not just that, but also what is going through the character's mind because the mind is also considered to be a sense gate. So the the mental sensations that are at work in the character at that time. And then I start to write from that place. And I find, I've just found it to be a very grounding um, and interesting way to um, enter the subjectivity of, uh, of my fictional characters. So interesting. That was Ruth Ozeki, the winner of the Women's Prize for Fiction for her novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness. This is The Book Show, where you are meeting the big book award winners of 2022. And the Booker Prize is arguably the most prestigious prize in the English-speaking world. This year, the winner was Shehan Karinatakala. It's the second time a Sri Lankan has won the prize after Michael Andache in 1992. Shehan's winning book was The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. And I love the setup for this book. It's about a photographer who's trying to solve his own murder from the afterlife during the ravages of the Sri Lankan Civil War in 1989. Shehan spoke to the producer of the book show, Sarah Lestrange, who asked about how he had fared with the political turmoil in Sri Lanka this year. At the beginning of July, we were people were on the street and um, jumping in the president's pool, storming the castle, the president was fleeing. And, you know, we saw it all on our televisions and uh, the whole world did. And then after that uncertainty, then we went straight into petrol queues, which were, I mean, you have to experience it to believe it. And then suddenly a book, a long list happens. So, and and in the midst, you know, I was writing about what was happening and, and doing that. So, yeah, it's, it's been a surreal few months. And uh, now uh, normalcy has been, rest- well, you know, it's now the queues are less. There's some system in place. There's gas and, you know, there's food in the shops. There's medicine in there. So, you know, we're not panicking. Uh, but you know, with Sri Lanka, it can always just just turn in a week, so you never know. Well, that's good to hear, because the setting for this novel, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, is actually 
a previous political storm. So it's set in 1989. There's conflict on a few different fronts. Can you just give us, um, I don't know, a quick history guide for what's going on in the background to your novel? Well, it happens on page 27, I think. Um, <laughs> you've got a little two-page little cheat sheet. Yes, thank you for um, that. But it's strange. There's never been a shortage of things to write about. Uh, when I started writing, it was 2009. It was the end of the 30-year war. So there's plenty to write about then. You know, there's a lot of controversy over how the war ended and how the peace was being managed. But of course, you know, I wasn't uh, brave enough to write about contemporary times. So I, I just but went to 1989, which I remember as a teenager being the darkest time time in our history. And I think that's still the case. I mean, we've had a lot of uncertainty this year, but nothing in comparison. And yeah, the multiple fronts were there was a ethnic civil war between Tamil, the Tamil Tiger separatists and the majority Sing Singhalese state. So that conflict had been going on for about six years then and would continue well into the, the 2000s. But uh, by 1989, there was a peace accord with India where uh, India sent their peacekeeping force over. So we had boots on ground and that, I mean, peacekeeping force, ironic term, because they were in, ended up fighting with the Tigers. And so there was conflicts up north and out east. Um, so I was in Colombo. So I think Colombo's always been a bit insulated from this. But uh, while that was happening, there was a Marxist insurrection in the south um, of uh, disaffected working class youth university uh, taking on the state. And again, it was it was a bloodbath in the sense that on one side, they were crippling the state and the state had their counter-terrorist units, which were abducting youth. So this is like heady stuff for a teenager going to school, uh, that you had two wars effectively happening at the same time. But... For me, and at the time, you didn't really understood it. All I could read was the fear on the grown-ups' faces and the fact that schools were closed and, and so on. So when I when looking back, I mean, from 20, 30 years later, I, one thing I felt safe about writing about this period was most of the protagonists and antagonists were dead. And this period had been well-documented and, you know, both of those wars were effectively over. So, um, yeah, that was it just seemed like a very good place to set a ghost story because there wasn't a shortage of corpses or restless spirits. So, um, yeah, I, I dove straight straight back into the 80s. Yes. And um, there are plenty of corpses in your book and um, plenty of gallows humour to go with it. So here we have Marley Almeida. He's our main protagonist. He's a photographer who's actually documented um, many crimes um, by many sides, and he finds himself in the afterlife after being murdered, he thinks, he doesn't know. Um, why a ghost story? Because then he sets out to find out what happened to me, why did I die and who killed me? Well, I think the reason I chose it because I previously had written a cricket story mm -hmm. uh, about 10 years ago called Chinaman, The Legend of Pradeep Matthew. And I'd written it, it was a cricket detective story about Sri Lanka's greatest cricketer who no one ever heard of, a, a quest almost. And I didn't expect it to travel outside of Colombo or outside of the subcontinent, but it uh, I was delighted to see it did quite well. And um, suddenly I was called on to talk about cricket and I wasn't really that much into cricket. I mean, I was I, I researching for the novel, but you know, there are a lot of Sri Lankans who are a lot more obsessed about cricket than me. And so just I thought, okay, how... I should do something completely different for my next trick. And then um, I thought what Sri Lanka needs is a great ghost story because there, there's been plenty of other stories. But So I just started collecting ghost stories and researching tragedies of the past. So that was, that was the motivation. 
But then I also realized that a ghost story, and like you rightly said, it's it's a whodunit. It's um, a photographer who had seen all sides of the various conflicts, so there wasn't a shortage of people who would be out to get him. It just seemed a, a way to d- discuss this complicated political situation through a ghost story, because the classic... Uh, so we had the seven moons, which is also rooted in spirituality. There is a... It's a single it's an Asian belief that the spirit hovers around for like seven days before it goes on to its next place. So that was the ticking, the ticking clock for the for the thriller. So he's got seven days to find out. Yeah, so he's got yeah seven days, seven moons to find out uh, and make peace with uh, with his former life. But also, it allowed me to explore these various factions who might have wanted him dead. So um, the structure is very much a murder mystery, but set in the afterlife of a, a dead guy trying to find out who killed him. And the afterlife is a curious place. It's very bureaucratic. <laughs> what, what gave you mm. that idea to, um, you know, have these people with their clipboards and then there are others who are trying to subvert the bureaucracy as well? It's kind of just like being back on Earth. So that was the tricky thing because most ghost stories, most stories of the afterlife don't really reveal much It's all, uh, until probably the final act. So it's all mysterious and uh, bumps in the night until you find out what happens. But mine on page one, you meet the ghost who says, hi, I'm a ghost. This is how I got here. So I had to imagine the afterlife. And of course, that's quite tricky because you, know, you can go into near-death experiences, philosophies, religions, but no one really knows. That's That also allowed me to make up whatever I chose. And it just made sense. Having spent time in, you know, in passport offices, in parcel, in various government bureaucracies over here, uh, and probably been writing down thoughts for this novel while sitting there, it just occurred to me that, yeah, of course, the souls have to be processed. And what's to say the afterlife's any more efficient than it is down here? And that made a lot of sense to me that Sri Lanka's full of these restless souls who have to get a piece of paper stamped at some department and don't know where they're going. And perhaps that's why the reason for the chaos, because these restless souls are whispering in people's ears. And it was also comic enough for me to be attracted to it. I'm, you know, Sri Lanka is a grim place, you know, most of the time, but it's not a sad, depressing place. It's not a dour place because we tend to appreciate the absurdity and the humor in it. So I think this was also a situation where the afterlife has a bureaucracy where God or the creator has gone off for lunch and hasn't turned turned back and people are just left in the queue, not sure what to do. It just seemed like a nice way to talk about and talk about Mali's journey as well. And was that a way for you to also offset the horror of what Mali is seeing and reporting what he's taken photographs of, um, to have that injection of satire and humor? Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, I do naturally gravitate to that sort of tone. But yeah, it did allow me to go to the the darker places because there, there's a very practical, um, right in the first act, you see the very practical craft of body disposal and how challenging it is. And uh, and these two goons were trying to figure out which dispose of Mali's body. So it was done in a in sort of absurd comic way, but it doesn't offset the fact that, yeah, there's a body being dismembered and, and the spirit is discussing it. Yeah, I think I do try and manage these two things because otherwise, yeah, I think as Sri Lanka said, better to laugh than to cry. And if you don't laugh, that's what you end up doing. And hopefully there are enough laughs in the book. Yeah, yeah. And also we we find out about Mali Almeida's personal life and that's quite affecting as well. 
But I want to come back to this idea of him as a photographer, you know, bearing witness to these horrors. Is this something Sri Lankans are ready for? Well, that was the central idea of the book that I was interested in exploring. And it's still, it's with us that we've had so many horrors and tragedies in our past. And there is this notion, well, should we dig up our past or should we bury it? And I think that's the conflict at the heart of the novel. And it's very easy for people who weren't affected to say, well, you know, those wall bygones, no, no point stirring that stuff up. Let's just move on. But there are people who cannot forget. And um, I don't think we've had memorials for, for atrocities like 1983. So we're not very good at addressing our past. And we have very, very short memories. Uh, and so I think that was what I was interested in exploring. And same with Mali. He's got these photographs that show and what he thinks sh will show the world everything bad about Sri Lanka and we will change. But it's it's a bit of a naive idea because I think you're right, Sri, Sri Lanka doesn't like to address its past. But of course, there has been, when I wrote this, so I wrote it before and during the pandemic, but since publication, there's been these last three months. And that's sort of given us a bit of hope because the, these protests were run by the young. I mean, the young faced up to the bullets first up and, and then we all joined. And it seems there's, there is some sort of idealism, a sense of inclusivity, a sense, and, and that's what was wonderful about the protests was, was that it transcended race, it transcended generations. And this is something we hadn't seen. We, we are a deeply divided country in our history. So maybe there is, maybe, maybe we are ready to, to face the past and all that. I and mean, there was that sense of idealism, which has sort of tapered off now with the practicality of getting back to living. And to be fair, the state has demonized the protest and a lot of their their leaders have been arrested and taken in so but even though the book was written in a period where i didn't think sri lankans were ready to dig up their past i think perhaps now now there is a different mood in the air shehan karanatakala with sarah lestrange his booker prize winning novel is the seven moons of mali almeida and now to Australia's most prestigious literary award, the Miles Franklin, which this year went to Bodies of Light by the Australian author Jennifer Down. And wow, this book is something so special. It's about Maggie, or is that Holly, or Joe, a woman who has shed her past life after a series of unimaginable traumas. And before you hear this chat with Jennifer, I do want to point out that some of these traumas involve childhood sexual abuse, and we will talk about that in this conversation. Let's start by finding out more about who our protagonist, Maggie, is. So she's a woman who um, grew up in uh, outer suburban Melbourne in the 1970s and 80s, and she grew up in out-of-home uh, and foster care, so a series of um, foster homes and, and residential care facilities. And it's kind of the story of, I guess, how the things that happened to her really early in life are played out across um, her later years and, and relationships and, you know, every facet of her of her future. And so it's, it's um, in large part a story of kind of reinvention and um, all of the different people we, we can be over time, but it's also a story of survivorship, I guess. And I imagine you would have had to do a huge amount of research into the home care system in Victoria in the 70s and 80s. What did you learn? It's interesting. I, um, I, I maybe approached it with a little bit more knowledge than 
I don't know, I don't want to say the average person, but the lay person, um, only because both of my parents are welfare workers. And I guess growing up, my dad worked in a school and, and my mum worked in the child protection system. And so I was really exposed from quite a young age to sort of some of the the really systemic failures that that are faced by children and by families, but also by their, their caregivers and, and by workers as well. So I, I say that because... Nothing I really came across in my research uh, surprised me, but there was a lot of, you know, shocking material. And I guess the sheer weight of it, you know, I, I did do a lot of research because I wanted this to be as faithful to, to the experience of care survivors as possible. And I wanted to approach it, you know, you know, with sensitivity and empathy. And what I will say is that when you are just reading about these experiences and, and very little else, the sheer volume of, of these stories um, is, is really heartbreaking. And it certainly made me conscious that it's something that doesn't get a lot of um, airtime in most media or fiction or film, at least not in a way that is, I, I want to say, truthful or um, not, not in the way that I was reading about in, you know, these kind of institutional reports and coronial inquests and things like that. And why do you think it is that we don't talk about it? Is it just because it's too unpalatable, too awful? Yeah, I mean, it's a question that I have spent years sitting with and I think your answer is certainly a big part of that. I think, I mean, I do find it fascinating that we as a society have this kind of appetite for true crime and for, you know, the the ideal victim in the, in the dead white woman. But I, if there's something about the abuse of children that we can't deal with as a society. And I understand that because it's so horrific and it's so painful that I, I understand to some extent the desire to turn away. But um, I think we do young people a great disservice if we if we pretend that it doesn't exist. And it's, it's less about kind of, um, I don't know, forcing people to look at something traumatic because, you know, there's a story there. That's not the intention. But I think we do need to be having discussions about these systemic failures and kind of structural problems that allow children and young people to be victimised again and again and again. <laughs> There's so much more space for that conversation to happen. I guess one of the challenges for you is taking all these terrible things you're learning about what happened to children in foster care, in residential care, and making sure you represent that truthfully and honestly without veering into, you know, what they call like trauma porn, without it becoming voyeuristic or gross. I mean, is that a hard line to navigate? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I think ultimately I, like, I, I can't be the judge of whether or not I've, I've done that successfully, but it, it was certainly something that I thought about a lot. And I think what's interesting is that uh, or what was interesting to me in writing was that I was trying to... Um, at times anticipate how it would be read and I was I was kind of anticipating that you know people who aren't familiar with um, residential or out-of-home care or even with the the kind of broader child protection system they would you know rightly be quite shocked by a, a lot of the content in bodies of light and I guess that's good in some ways you know that that, that it's shocking to them but also it's a relatively faithful rendering of um, certainly this time period and of, you know, many of the the weaknesses or the, the kind of blind spots when it comes to like the most vulnerable people in state care. And so I think it's a hard line to walk, but ultimately like the emails that I've received from people who did grow up in um, residential and out of home care, 
those are kind of the ones that are most important to me. And so far they've all been, I don't know, unfailingly generous and really beautiful. And, you know, it's, it's not my story, but at some point we still have a moral responsibility as a society to, to examine these things, even if they're ugly or um, unpalatable, as you say. Yeah. One of the things that was really striking to me in Maggie's story was just how unstable her living situation is as a child. She moves from home to home to carer to carer. Is this constant movement normal? Yeah, I mean, for many children, it absolutely is. And of course, you know, things, you know, this is set partly in the 70s and 80s, and there have been some changes. Residential care facilities still exist, but they are different. The, the problems, a lot of the problems kind of that are touched on in the book still very much exist. But yeah, one of them is that constant bouncing around from place to place. And, you know, there, there are many, many reasons for that, but that lack of stability can have obviously really profound effects for, um, for young people when both developmentally and psychologically, they, they really require that kind of um, a level field under their feet. Yeah, and moving around means sometimes you're going to be placed with really wonderful carers and sometimes you're going to be placed with horrible carers, people with malicious intent. You know, Maggie in your book is sexually assaulted by a carer when she's just 11 years old. What does Maggie understand at that age about what is happening to her? Um, I think she is old enough to understand that it is um, wrong, but through a range of, I don't know, you know, it's complex because it's, um, there are really complex and kind of difficult power dynamics at play, right? Because not only is the person who assaults her older, he's, he's male, but he is also her, her cottage father, her caregiver. And so um, we know that sexual assault and sexual abuse is, you know, underreported at a kind of baseline level. But when you add in these these factors of, you know, her young age and the fact that the person who is supposed to be caring for her is perpetrating this and a kind of pre-existing distrust of authority, it's kind of easy, I guess, for me to see why she wouldn't report it or or try to meet it face-to-face, I suppose. So she, she understands at 11 or 12 that that is wrong and that she is being wronged, but her capacity to kind of address it or to escape that situation is is very limited and very dictated by her circumstances. Mm. You were speaking earlier about this idea of reinvention and different lives. And because Maggie is always moving from home to home, there really is the opportunity for her to experience all these different lives and for us to read about so many different lives. There are stories of, as we've talked about, evil men, but also incredibly kind carers, there's foster siblings, gangs of school friends, there's loss, there's experimentation, there's independence. And all that happens before Maggie's even finished high school. Uh, One of the things I like about the book is that you divide this story up, not by years, but by the places where Maggie lives, because there are so many. How did you land on this storytelling device? I think when I first started writing and I was still kind of getting to know the characters in the story, I was writing it more as a um, collection of linked short stories. Not that I think it was ever destined to be that, but I was writing in this very fragmentary approach because I think I, I, I was just still learning about the world of, of the novel. And 
I'm like prodigiously bad with uh, timelines and dates and numbers. And so I think situating things according to, you know, in this kind of chronology, maybe started off as a tool to kind of help me keep track of things in what was quite a long timeline, even, you know, even when it was um, in its infancy, I think I knew this novel would span several decades. And um, then I realised that in some ways it felt kind of like infantile or obvious when I was writing, but because it is such a, I guess, an expansive book and it, it travels to all of these different places and, and as I said, spans kind of five decades um, they became kind of, I don't know, useful anchors, I think, for the reader, especially because it's a mostly linear narrative, but there is a little bit of jumping back and forth in time. And, the, you know, it deals in part the story with the kind of fallibility or the mutability of memory. And so I just wanted to make things, I suppose, as clear as possible to the reader while still retaining that element of, um, I don't know, the, the question of Maggie's reliability, I suppose, as a narrator. Mm, I, I really appreciated that. So thank you. I didn't know picking up the book that we were going to go so far through Maggie's life. I, you know, I originally thought this might just be a story of a childhood because there is enough that happens in that childhood to fill at least two novels. Why was it so important for you to look beyond the childhood and into Maggie's adult life? I mean, I was interested from the beginning in examining the effects of um, quite profound childhood trauma throughout life. Um, you know, what does it look like when you're a young person navigating high school or university, when you have kind of been told your whole life that you don't belong in those places or, or you're not deserving of a seat at the table? And then what does it look like to try to attempt a relationship or motherhood or, uh, you know, a professional career when your sense of self is, is kind of warped and has been, um, I don't know, for want of a better phrase, kind of pockmarked by these very formative incidents growing up. And I think, like, you're right, there's certainly enough that happens in, in Maggie's kind of childhood and, and young adulthood to service a, a, a book. But um, for me, the not the more interesting question, but an equally interesting question is, is what does someone look like as they age? You know, like, what does it look like when they're 40 or 50 years old? Yeah, there's an incredible line in the book where Maggie tells us, I was not yet 25 and had spent half my life in rooms I hadn't chosen and couldn't leave. It was such a powerful line. And I certainly stood up and thought, wow, yeah, how on earth can she have anything but a difficult adulthood after all that she's already been through? Yeah, I mean, I think it felt really important for me at least to explore that idea of agency as well. And unfortunately, the reality of, of growing up in state care is that children and young people are often denied agency or, you know, the ability to have true autonomy, even though they might lack the stability of kind of a traditional parent or caregiver type relationship. And so I wanted to honour the, the idea that um, you might kind of struggle with those ideas of independence or of what it means to exist as a person in the world when you're kind of thrust out and, you know, on your own but also the, the kind of triumph of that, even, you know, the, the, the first time you uh, pay a phone bill or use a Medicare card or, or uh, use a gas oven or something, all of that stuff that is kind of, you know, they're universal experiences, but most of us have someone telling us how to do it or guiding us through the process the first time we, we encounter those things. And often 
with, you know, at-risk young people, there are these crucial steps that are that are kind of missed out or, or that happen later than, than one would expect because there isn't necessarily a caregiver there saying, this is how you practice safe sex or this is how you change a light bulb or whatever it is. And there is a lot that happens in Maggie's adulthood. I don't want to spoil too much, Jennifer, because for me, I think the suspense and the discovery in this book was part of what made the reading experience so special. But we should talk about the fact that when the book opens in what's essentially the present day, Maggie has a new name and a new identity. Uh, Where and who is she when we meet her? Yeah, so when we meet Maggie, um, and I guess where we kind of leave her at the end of the book, she is living in Burlington, Vermont, in kind of uh, the northeastern United States, Um, and she's living under a different name. Her life is kind of, I don't want to say small, but it's necessarily kind of quite a modest and monastic sort of life. She has like a routine of of going to work and of walking her dog, and she's a kind of narrow circle of friends, and that's very much by choice. And it is kind of, I don't think I'm spoiling anything when I say that is kind of the greatest, I don't know, sense of or period of stability, I think, that she experiences during that during the novel. And over the course of the, the novel, we come to learn why she's ended up in another hemisphere and why she's changed her name. And I guess that's kind of one of the more formal reinventions. You kind of alluded, Claire, earlier to the fact that she really reinvents herself mm-hmm. with every move she mm-hmm. makes, you know, every house as a child. But um, by adopting a new name and effectively identity, she has kind of formalised to herself this this process of rebirth or reinvention. And we learn, I think, in the first chapter that she's basically been a missing person in Australia. It's a bit of a mystery as what happened to Maggie because of a big incident that happened in her past. Um, did you get to learn, Jennifer, how to change your identity? Can you do that right now? <laughs> Actually, I, I read so much about it and what I learned is that it was a lot easier 20 years ago. Like everything changed after 9-11, which makes it, uh, it's still possible, but it's much, much, much more difficult now. But yeah, absolutely. There are like identity brokers who, because of course there are quite reasonable reasons why somebody might choose to to reinvent themselves. You know, often people in family violence situations or um, I don't know, there are cases like that where you might quite plausibly and legitimately want to become a new person. But one interesting thing that I did learn is that there's quite a gendered difference. So women who decide to start a new life or or reinvent themselves typically do so for family violence reasons, which um, is maybe, I don't know, depressingly predictable. But um, blokes who do it tend to be doing it for financial reasons. So like kind of white collar fraud um, type well, tax evasion, like they're trying to pull one over the government or whatever. And I thought that was really interesting. And the other thing that I learned was that it's much more common among men to to attempt to, to start a new life, but they also don't know if that's because more men attempt it or if because if it's because women are just more successful at it, if that makes sense. Mm, so, mm. you know, this idea that women kind of get away with it in large part because, I don't know, they are more successful. But the one thing that really struck me was how uh, difficult a process it is, not just kind of logistically, but you you can't contact anybody ever again, you know. There's no, you can't just tell one person, you can't tell your partner or, you know, your your childhood best friend or your mum or your sister um, you really have to divest yourself completely of your past. And I think for most people, 
even those of us who you know might consider ourselves independent or whatever else that that is kind of um I don't know that would be enough psychic trauma I think to 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 bring me undone completely oh yeah even the fact that she worries oh I can't have too much to drink I can't get too tired what if I talk in my sleep something might slip you know I might let it out yeah I mean it's a it's a real um hypervigilance that Maggie experiences but then in a kind of awful way, I suppose she is perfectly set up for that, right? Because she's been hypervigilant her whole life. That's that's the nature of having grown up as an at-risk child. Mm. There is a lot of pain in this book, but I, I really want to point out that there are some moments of pure beauty and joy, uh, a trip to the ballet, phosphorescent algae. Uh, tell me about the decision to include these kind of moments of transcendence in your book. Oh, I just think, you know, the whole point of, or for me at least, of, of writing a realist novel is um, is to faithfully represent real life, right? Which sounds maybe really obvious, but no one's, no one's life is kind of devoid of joy or of these moments of beauty. And, you know, the cynical answer would be that it's unsustainable as either a reader or a writer to read something that's just like uh, constant misery page by page. But actually... It, it wouldn't have made sense to me to write something that was, um, you know, empty of those moments of peace or of stability or of happiness because that's it's not true to life. And and it also felt important to, to represent Maggie as being someone who is very capable of eking out those moments of, of happiness or of peace despite what she's been through. And I don't mean that in the sense of resilience but, but just in the sense of... Um, kind of clawing back any moments of beauty that that you can. Um, I did want to talk about ballet, though, um, because I loved the scene where Maggie goes to the ballet and is absolutely transported because I've always loved dancing in ballet. And I think you have too, right? Yeah, I mean, not not in kind of a, a professional way, but, yeah, I did. I, I um, One of my first jobs, non-hospitality jobs, was um, teaching ballet to, to little kids. Like, I'm talking, like, three to seven years old. Um, Me too. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> so you know all of that, like wriggling them out of leotards and, and you know, and crossovers before they, they wet their pants backstage. Um, <laughs> yep. Did they call you Miss Jennifer? They did, yes. Yep. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, it was, yeah, it was kind of like a, it was my Saturday morning um, job when I was in high school and, yeah, I have very, very fond memories of it. Jennifer Down, the winner of the 2022 Miles Franklin Award for her book, Bodies of Light. It's one of my favourite books of the year and I am so glad I got to read it. You've been listening to the book show made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Noongar people and produced by Sarah Lestrange. I'm Claire Nichols, back with more of my favourite conversations from the book show next week. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.